We are starting a new series in the book of Jonah. So if you'd like, uh, I encourage you to turn there to the book of Jonah. In just a few moments, I'll start reading. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you, and you'll find Jonah on page 922 in one of those Bibles. 922. A little bit, though, actually from the New Testament before we get to this. Early in Jesus' ministry, is already starting to gather crowds around him. They, they come, they were, they were drawn by his miracles, but also by his words. And, and one of the most significant moments early in his ministry, he had the people all sit down on a hillside, and he taught. And this message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest recorded message from Jesus, it goes from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7. In that, he really unfolds the ethics of his kingdom what his people should value, how they should live, that reflects his, his kingdom values. And right in the middle of that are some famous words about loving your enemy. Even those who maybe have never opened a Bible before might, might have heard this because it is so famous for Jesus. This is in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It says, you act, or you might have thought, yes, love your neighbor, but, but your enemy, it's okay to hate. And he says, no, no. Love your enemy as well, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why does he say you should love even your enemy? He says, because that's what God does. And as you do that, you mirror his heart. You you live as the Father would. You reflect the heart of the Father. Too often, though, towards those we think of as enemies, our dominant emotions are not compassion, love, mercy. Our dominant emotions are anger and fear. We get angry. Angry at maybe policies that somebody's trying to put in place on the other side of the political aisle from us, and we get angry because maybe we see them as destructive. And they may be destructive. We get angry or we get fearful rather than our dominant response, one of compassion. Jesus says here we are to love our enemies because this is what the Father does. This is not, in one sense, though, new teaching. It's new in that he's correcting them, but it's a teaching we see running throughout the Old Testament. We see that this is the heart of God, not just now displayed in Christ, but it's always been his heart. And perhaps nowhere do we see that more clearly taught than in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah shows us God's boundless compassion, even towards his enemies, person of Jonah shows us what we too often see in ourselves, a, a very limited compassion, much more limited than God's. The book of Jonah teaches us God's heart. The person of Jonah might be a convicting thing for how we often respond. There's an old hymn called The Wideness. There's a wideness in God's mercy, and I think it displays this well. Sin begins this way. There's a wideness in God's mercy. Like the wideness of the sea, there's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. So you have a, of a wideness, a, a, a boundless mercy in God. But, two verses later in this same hymn, it says, but we make God's love too narrow 
by false limits of our own. We magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. That is what we will see in Jonah. God's wide mercy. But in the person of Jonah, we'll see this narrow view that that he wants mercy for him, for Jonah, for his people, the Israelites, but not for his enemies. Let's go ahead and read this now. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord." Before we get to the details of this verse, I just want to place this in the context of the storyline of the Bible. The reason I do this is because you might have grown up in Sunday school hearing about Jonah. You know all about this, but you might be like me. I didn't grow up going to Sunday school. And when I first started kind of learning the Bible, this would have been later in high school, I didn't know where some of these things fell in, and you can maybe feel lost there. And so if that's you, I just kind of want to take a moment and help you see where this fits in the Bible as a whole. Jonah is an Old Testament book meaning it's before the time of Christ. New Testament would be Jesus' time and after. So it's an Old Testament book before Jesus has come. It falls roughly about the years 800 to 700 B.C. We don't know exactly because there's not enough detail to pin it down, but it's roughly that time frame, which means here's where it kind of falls into some other key events. About 290 B.C., more than 1,000 years earlier, God calls a man named Abraham. And he calls him and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation and from your nation will bless many nations. That's the beginning really of the Jewish people. And this is with Abraham about 2090 B.C. Uh, About 1800 B.C., the people that have started to come up through him, his descendants, find their way down to Egypt. This happens, a story that you can read about with a man named Joseph. And they end up down in Egypt beginning as guests but staying as slaves. They're in Egypt for about 400 years Before Moses, God raises up Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and back into the promised land. That's about 1400 B.C. They end up in the land, have different leaders rise and fall until they they demand a king and God gives them a king. And so in about 1050 B.C., uh, Saul is placed on the throne. Then we have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, each serve for 40 years And then after the death of Solomon, the kingdom divides. So we have Saul, David, Solomon, and the kingdom divides. We have the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. That northern kingdom of Israel continues till about 722 B.C., about 250 years, and then they're taken away into captivity. And they're taken away by the very people that Jonah is writing to here, or Jonah is sent to, the Ninevites. That's the the Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Those people that carry away the northern kingdom, that's who Jonah is sent to. So that sort of places it there a little bit in the history. Well, it's around that time that these events take place. It's either just before they're taken away into captivity, perhaps a few decades, but while Assyria is still a a growing and mighty threat, or it's just after. Either way, it's the dominant threat 
in the region. So with that going on, God gives this command to a man named Jonah to go. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that. Look again at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. From the very beginning, we see the two main characters of this book, Jonah and the Lord. In fact, throughout this book, it's an interaction between these two. And one person summarizes it this way. What one wants, the other does not always do. What one wants, between Jonah and the Lord, the other does not always do. God commands Jonah to go, and we'll see he does not. God gives him another chance. We'll see kind of how that unfolds. But at the same time, God is not doing what Jonah wants. Jonah is very frustrated at God because he wants a different response from God than what is actually unfolding in these, in these chapters. Jonah here, though, is given a mission and a message. And right here at the very beginning, it starts the way most Old Testament prophecies would begin. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That is a kind of a standard beginning for a prophetic book. Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, they would all start in a similar way. It's what happens next that is different. This word comes, and it comes to Jonah. What do we know about Jonah? We know what we have in this book, these four chapters, and there's one other scene in the Old Testament where Jonah shows up. And it's in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. In 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25 specifically, his name comes up again. I want to read this, and I want you to think about how it leads into the events of this book. 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 25. He restored the border of Israel. This is talking about the king that Jonah served as a prophet during his time. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Even if you don't understand kind of all that's happening there, just notice that, that the only other prophecy that we have of Jonah is him telling by the word of the Lord this king, who in fact right before this, the verse right before this, is described as a wicked king. But God uses Jonah to tell him, you need to expand these borders, you need to take some more land. It became a bit of a cushion, and it was actually a cushion against Assyria. Because Assyria, the people that the book of Jonah, he's being commanded to go to, these Assyrians were pressing in, and they were a threat. And so the Lord had Jonah tell the king, expand this out. Why did God do that? Verse 26. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, that's the king, the son of Joash. So the only other time we see him, God is using him to help protect the Israelites from their enemies, which we know it's the Assyrians. It's kind of a pro-Israel, protective message. Now, he says, arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, this great city of the Assyrians, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. The very people he's trying to protect Israel from, now he's saying, go to them. Go to them. Nineveh is described here as a great city. And it was. It was great uh, in terms of size. It was at this point, one of the largest cities in the world, within a few decades, it would be the largest city in the world at its time. Hundreds of thousands of people. 
It was mighty in terms of military, in terms of culture. Um, here's where it's located. It's, it's in what would be modern-day Iraq, actually just across the river from Mosul. So if you've heard of Mosul, Iraq, it's been in the news the last couple of years because of fighting there. It's actually just across the Tigris River from Mosul. You could go there. You could see the ruins today. Uh, it's, it's along the Tigris River it's about 600 miles from Israel. So if Jonah was down here in probably Samaria, uh, just north of, of Jerusalem, it'd be about a 600-mile journey here to Nineveh. It wasn't the capital city yet of Assyria. It would later become the capital, but it was the most prominent city for Assyria. It was a great city, but it was a wicked city. Put your eyes again in verse 2. It says, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It's a great city, it was a wicked city. Uh, honestly, I've wrestled as I was studying this to, to know how much of this wickedness to share with you. And it's not because we don't have details. We have incredible details about their wickedness because they gloried in it and they preserved it. I just don't want to make you squeamish today. Uh, but I want to share a little bit. And the reason is I want you to feel what Jonah felt when he was told to go there. The Assyrians were known as brutal when they conquered people. They, they would boast about planes just littered with the bodies of their enemies. They would do carvings that would capture this to be able to celebrate. And in fact, Sennacherib, who was one of the kings during the time of Hezekiah, who was one of the kings of Assyria, when they conquered one city, the city of Lashish, to be able to commemorate that, he had this huge relief that was eight feet tall and would run along the walls of his, of his palace that would commemorate it. You can actually go see it today. It was rediscovered in 1850 uh, and then moved to the Royal British Museum in London. So you could go there today. You could take a look at it. If you zoom in close, you see depictions of what happened at the time. And keep in mind, this is not an enemy of Assyria saying, look how bad they are. This is the Assyrians boasting in what they did. And you see families, if you can kind of see this, uh, families using a camel because they're, they're being forced to move and relocate. There's images of people being run through with spears, of body parts cut off. It's brutal, and they're boasting in it. They would pull out the tongues of their prisoners. They would burn people alive, and they would, they would glory in it. It was a wicked place, and they were wicked against Israel. Not just that these are bad people out there. Israel had suffered as a result of this. It, it was either just before they were taken away into captivity in 722, or just after. Even if it's before, they were pressing against them for decades. And, and they knew of of how they were mistreating all these places around, and it was starting to happen against Israel as well. So this wasn't just a hypothetical enemy. It was a real enemy, and they have suffered at their hands. And that wickedness, it says, has come up before me, says the Lord. It's using human-like language. It's not like God was unaware it was happening, but using human-like language to say God is now going to act. This atrocity, these, these women who are made without husbands, these orphans who now have no parents. Um, God is going to act. He's going to send Jonah to cry against it. Doesn't tell Jonah here, at least not what's recorded, what this message is to be. We know, because at the end of chapter 3, 
spoiler alert, he eventually goes. And he says eight words. Let's record it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people do respond. But it is a message of crying out to them to repent or they will be overthrown. That's what Jonah is told to do. That's the command. What does he actually do? He flees. He flees. And this is where Jonah does not match the other prophets. A helpful exercise when you're reading the Bible, whether it's Old or New Testament, is try to read it and try to imagine the reaction of the intended original audience. What would their reaction have been? You might, especially if you grew up in church, you might have read Jonah a bunch of times. This doesn't surprise you. You know what's coming. The original audience would have been shocked. Because what do all the other prophets do? Jonah is one of 12 minor prophets that we have in the Old Testament. And if you look at each of the other 11, the word comes and they take it. They take it to the people. It's a word of warning. It's a word of comfort. Whatever it is, they obey. God gives them a word and their job is to take it to the people. What does Jonah do? He flees. He's given this word and he flees. This would have been shocking to the original audience. And he flees as far away as he can. At least he attempts to. He tries to go to Tarshish. Tarshish is, is on the coast of modern-day Spain. So if you can picture that map of Israel, Nineveh would have been to the east, and Tarshish is to the west. Nineveh is going inland. Tarshish is out to sea. Nineveh would have been the urban area of the time. Tarshish is as rural as you can get. It is, it is out in the sticks, as, as far as you can imagine. And he's fleeing. Why? We don't yet know. We'll learn later, and I'll come to that in just a moment, but at this point, we're left to wonder, why is he fleeing? A common thought might be, well, maybe he's just afraid. Or maybe he thinks it's hopeless. And both of those, you could understand that. I heard somebody compare it, and we want to use these comparisons cautiously, but I think it's about as accurate as you could get. It would be like telling a Jewish rabbi in 1941 to go to the streets of Berlin in Germany and cry out against the Nazi regime to stop and to repent. That would be as dangerous and as hopeless as you could understand Jonah feeling, going to this place where it seems like there's no hope and in fact, he will be slaughtered if he goes. You can imagine that as his response and why he doesn't go But what we learn later is that's not what keeps him away. It's not that type of fear. Here's what it tells us. You go to the very end of Jonah 3. You can flip there if it's maybe the next page in your Bible. Or you can look up here. The end of Jonah 3, when he finally does go and he gives this message and the people turn. Jonah 3 verse 10, it says, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Jonah did finally bring this message. The people turned. And so God did not destroy the city. And the very next verse, the very beginning of chapter 4, shows us Jonah's response. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Why did he not want to go? It's not because he's afraid. It's not because he thinks they won't listen. He's afraid they will listen. He's afraid that they will listen and they will turn and God won't destroy them. And he wants God to destroy them. He does not want them to be spared. He does not want them to be saved. He wants them to be squashed. It is a, it is a type of revenge. And given what we just said about Assyria, you can sort of understand that. They were a brutal enemy and he wants them to get what's coming to them. So he flees to forestall this, uh, thinking if I don't go, perhaps they won't repent and God will destroy them after all. Notice, though, that he doesn't just flee from Nineveh, not going to Nineveh. He tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. It says it twice in verse 3. It says he rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. At the end of verse 3, from the presence of the Lord. As if that were possible. The, The reality is what we see over and over again in passages like Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Can Jonah actually flee from God's presence? No. Anywhere he goes, God will be there. But he's sure going to try. Briefly, don't we sometimes do this when our conscience is guilty? Conscience is guilty of something, so we're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip church. I'm gonna keep my Bible closed. I'm gonna stay away from my Christian friends. I'm gonna actually change the radio so I don't hear Christian music. We're trying to flee from the presence of the Lord as if that were possible. Rather than fleeing to Him, our source and our hope, Jonah is fleeing even from the presence of the Lord. And yet the Lord pursues, cannot run someplace where He is not waiting for us. There's actually four literary devices, four ways that this is written to highlight his rebellion. Hebrew's not going to underline words. It's not going to put them in bold. It uses repetition. And so notice this. There's a repeated use of the term arise. Verse 2, he said, he's told by God, arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah rose, but he fled. There's a repeat of the word arise and rose. Rather than Nineveh, three times in here it repeats where he's going instead. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. Three times it repeats it. Why do we need to hear it three times? Because it's emphasizing not Nineveh, but as far away as he could get. It repeats that he went down. The wickedness came up to the Lord. Jonah goes down to Joppa, down into the boat, getting away, getting away. And then I already mentioned twice, it says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Two times in verse 3. He, does, he wants no part of this. Next week we'll pick up with the rest of the narrative in chapter 1. And we'll roughly do a chapter a week. I want you to see though kind of what's to come. So as you're studying this book, reading it on your own, listening here, you can kind of get your arms around it. So as we wrap up, I want to I just point out a few things. I would say the theme of this book is God's boundless compassion. God's boundless compassion. He shows compassion throughout the book. We'll see next week in chapter 1, he shows compassion to the sailors that Jonah ends up enlisting to help him. He shows compassion on Jonah. He shows compassion on the Ninevites. But Jonah, the person, 
does not want to show compassion. Jonah in here is a bit of, again, if you can think back to high school English, you might remember the concept of a foil in literature. A foil is the character that, that, that really is, is there to highlight the virtues of the main character. It's, it's through their flaws highlight the virtue of another. And Jonah, the person, is in this book, I think, to show us that. By his lack of compassion, he highlights God's compassion all the more. God's boundless compassion. Key verse that's helpful for you to keep your mind kind of wrapped around would be what we saw in chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? In order to forestall this, this, this rescue of Nineveh, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is what God is like, and Jonah doesn't like that, at least not in this moment. He, he likes it like all of us do when God is compassionate to him, but not when he's compassionate to his enemies. This book will unfold this way. Roughly each chapter, kind of with a big idea, Jonah's flight in chapter 1, we'll finish that next week. Jonah's rescue in chapter 2. Jonah's sermon when he does finally go. And then Jonah's complaint. Each of these roughly one week will cover. So it will take us, including today, five weeks to get through this book. It's a short book. Four chapters, but only 48 verses in total. It's pretty compact. But what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this book of Jonah? And, and maybe this gets at why I wanted to teach it now. I would say the purpose for when it was originally written and the purpose for us today is to convince God's people to embrace God's heart to reach all people. To convince God's people. At the time, that was the, the Israelites. And like Jonah, they needed to be taught and shown that God's heart is a God of compassion even towards his enemies. And he is a God who brings justice and he's a God who disciplines, but he wants to see them repent and he wants to see them turn and not be destroyed, not just for Israel, but for all people. But we need to learn that lesson as well. We, we might think of God's heart for us and we're grateful for his mercy, but we want from our enemies is what Jonah wanted. We want them to be destroyed. And we might need to be convinced as well that God's heart is to reach all people. And so this is why, actually, we're doing this right after Galatians. If you were with us week after week for Galatians, what the book of Galatians does is it explains the gospel. What is the gospel? What should you believe? How are you forgiven? Jonah, the book of Jonah, shows us what to do with the gospel, not merely to believe it ourselves, but to take it, to take it to others. If the gospel is simply... That we have a problem, God has a solution, and we have a responsibility. Our, our, our problem is that we have, we have disobeyed, we have sinned against a holy God. I have, you have, we all have, and we deserve his wrath. Our solution that God has given is Jesus. He came, he lived, he died on our behalf, and our responsibility is to believe that, to turn from our sin, trust in him. When we do that, we get free forgiveness from God. That's what the book of Galatians unfolds. Who needs to hear that message? Everyone. Everyone. Not just us, and not just the people we like, but everyone. What this book, I hope to do, is, 
is stir within us that heart of compassion that God has. You might struggle with knowing, how do I take that gospel to others? I don't know how to start that conversation. I don't know what to say in terms of getting things going. That's a how question. But before we even get to there, you have to say, do I want to? Do I want people to know Jesus? Do I want my enemies to know Jesus? Or, like Jonah, do I just want them to get what's coming to them? Going back to where we began, what are your dominant emotions when you think of people that you don't like? Is it anger and fear? Or is it compassion? There might be a place for a righteous anger. There might be some even legitimate fear. But is your overwhelming sense of they need Jesus. And I want them to know Jesus. And there's compassion there. Think about this in real life things. Maybe like you're in middle school or high school and there's just kids that are making your life miserable. What do you want for them? I think about incident when I was in eighth grade. I remember in eighth grade, uh, this, this kid that just started to bully me. And I was bigger than him, but he was a wrestler. And, and he just was tormenting me. And I could, I could tell you his name now, but we, we put these messages online, and I don't want him to find me, all right? Um, I mean, I, I remember walking through that and, and just thinking, I, I, I hate this. And I, and I just wanted him to get what was coming to him. Is that your experience? Middle school, high school? Maybe you're older, and, and you think of people on the other side of the political aisle, and you see policies that they're trying to push, and you think this is going to be destructive and harmful, and it, and it may be. But what you feel dominantly towards them is anger and fear rather than, man, they need Jesus. And, and I have compassion for them. I'm somewhat upset about these policies. I'm, I'm worried about what it might do, but, but your dominant emotion is compassion. Or is it anger and fear? When you consider other nations and other people groups, is it a sense of compassion, or, or are you just bothered by their values that you think maybe are subjecting women to horrible situations, or it's overly controlling, or, or abusive, and, and all these things kind of in, in people groups around the world, and it may be that, but is it anger and fear, or is it compassion? Like, they need Jesus, and I want them to know Jesus. The book of Jonah, in particular, the person of Jonah, by contrast, might expose that in us. And my hope is that it helps push us from that to God's compassionate heart, where we want what he wants. Let's pray.